The information provided on the Finesse Your Money podcast is not intended to constitute legal, business, financial or other professional or product advice. It is provided as general information only and is not intended as a substitute for personal advice from a qualified and licensed professional who is familiar with the facts of your particular circumstances. Ever asked yourself where your money is going? It's a common problem for businesses and people personally. Is it dumb luck to be successful with money? Or is it the smartest and most successful businesses and people that plan and know their numbers? Is your money out of control or needing some finessing? In this second season of Finesse Your Money, we're focusing on growth for businesses and personal and practical steps that you can take to grow. We explore what inspires our inspirational guests and the importance of giving back. We've also got some excellent tips from our guests about their planning process and who they rely on to keep their money under control and set themselves up for a bright, happy future. Get ready to be inspired. I'm Janine Wilson, the host of Finesse Your Money. I've been a financial advisor for 10 years and an accountant beforehand for, well, many more years. I'm the founder of Finesse Financial Advisors. Hi, and welcome to Finesse Your Money. I'm Janine Wilson, and our guest today is James Michael. James is a clinically assessed introvert who has built eight successful businesses which have a common theme of realising their potential. James will tell you he's a proud father of two young adults who are achieving in their own right, a former commando, I'd like to hear more about that, a social scientist obsessed with being a good role model and inspiring absolutely everybody to go and chase their fullest potential. We're not here for a long time, he says, so we ought to be here for a good time. No point in living life scared. Fascinating. So stick around. If you've ever wondered about how genuinely high-performing sales professionals are hardwired, then the results of a three-year psychometric study of nearly 4,000 sales pros here in Australia done by James will surely fascinate you. There's some surprises in there. And for the white paper on this unique study, just email james at jamesm at justifiedtalent.com with a subject line study and it's all yours. Thanks for that offer and welcome, James. My pleasure. Thank you. Great to be here. So stick around until the end, listeners, because James will share his top tips very soon. So James, you're the founder and CEO of Justified Talent, a recognised leader in attracting, selecting, recruiting and optimising sales professionals for SMEs. Essentially, you help small businesses connect with their sales talents to create growth opportunities better, faster, and for a lower investment. Tell us more about your business and what excites you about it. Okay. So it's a business that was kind of born of some frustration with the recruitment sector. There's very few people who speak in glowing terms about recruiters, and I would have counted myself amongst them. So I kicked the business off in January 2018 with an intent of it being a distinctly different way of going about this thing called recruitment. Because what I had learned and the social scientist in me went and did a bit of research and what I learned was that the traditional recruitment methodology, you know, that traditional model of call for a cover letter, call for a resume, do a structured interview, maybe do a personality assessment and then do reference checking, those five standards, you know, the, the gold standard of recruitment, turns out that all five of those things have a predictive reliability of 0.26 where the ideal number is one, you really are actually better off flipping a coin. Um, the odds will work more in your favor. So, you know, I wanted to create something which not only represented good value for money for SME owners, but which also provided 
real rigorous assessment and making sure that the people that we presented to our clients absolutely can and will do the job and do it well. Mm. So in business and life, how important is it to be open-minded to new ideas and ways of doing things? Great question. I recall way back in the 1990s going to the retirement lunch of a gent who I had looked up to for many, many years. He was a, a bit of an icon at that point in time in our game and you know, somebody who I had kind of drawn from on many, many occasions. He's name was Charles Ephraims. And there's this one line that Charles used as part of his farewell speech that stays with me today. And that was that he said, you know, the, the game we're in is changing. And people will say that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, let me give you this assurance, people. The quickest way to become an old dog is to stop learning new tricks. Excellent advice. <laughs> right, absolutely. And, and, and that was before, you know, we could even say the word internet. You know, we're, we're in an age now where absolutely everything is changing before our very eyes. And so if we're not evolving and learning and adapting, well, guess what? That really means we're dying. I have to say, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember my first mobile phone. I'm not sure if you do. They came in briefcases or they mm -hmm. were about the size of a Besser block in a soft bag. Yeah. We've gone down to the most minuscule uh, mobile phone and now we're sort of on the way back up where screens yeah. are more important. But yeah, look, adapt or die. Um, so what's your best advice to businesses around exploring new ideas or switching things up? Um, primarily don't be afraid, right? Um, you're unlikely to do something which is going to be absolutely and utterly catastrophic to your business, right? So it's, it's about experimenting and tinkering, um, move on a little more quickly than perhaps you were thinking of doing. Don't be afraid of it because the quicker you make that decision to move on it, the quicker you find out whether it was the right one or the wrong one. You know, and, and one of the things that I've learned in life is where some things do have limitations, the ability to make decisions is unlimited, right? There's no limit on how many decisions you get to make in a day or a week or a month or your life. So if it's the wrong one, just make another one. Yeah, fix it by making a different choice. <laughs> so at Finesse Financial Advisors, we maintain a strong commitment to putting the client first and while, you know, using an evidence-based investment process. So what does an evidence-based recruitment process mean at Justified Talent? Right. Look, so my old man's very handy with his hands. I'm not particularly. I'm more adept with my head. But the old boy's good with his hands. And he subscribes to that notion of measure twice cut once, right? So as we kicked off Justify Talent, I decided that I would enroll a version of that. And so it goes along the lines of measure four times to place once. As people come through our selection process, they're actually assessed using four very, very strong, robust, valid assessment tools that are purpose-built for recruitment and in the sales arena. And so we get a really, really deep and scientifically validated understanding, not only of can the person do, but also what will the person do, right? And so evidence-based essentially means we assess them four different times using four different instruments. And so we gather data rather than subjective opinion. Really interesting stuff. So helping clients build a blueprint for their future, you know, their financial future is what excites me about my work. So tell us about Justified Talent's blueprint. Look, you and I are not dissimilar uh, in that regard. You know, the one kind of guiding light for me is that I absolutely believe that absolutely every one of us, each and every one of us has amazing potential. And we have 
a capacity to be, you know, so many different things and, and, and beyond perhaps what we are now. I'm not suggesting that we can be absolutely anything we want to be. You know, I think the likelihood of me being an astronaut is fairly slim no matter how hard I you know I might really really want to but I know I've got great capacity in me and so you know the one thing that permeates almost everything that I do and talk about and read about and I'm interested in is helping people realize their potential right and so alongside of that the other thing that I've got a passion for is Australian small business owners I've owned eight businesses now I, I know how hard it is but I also know how exciting it is and I know how rewarding it can be in many senses of that word uh, you know when things start to go the way you want them to go and so what I want to be able to do is to help small business owners realize that goal that dream that ambition that they had when they first started out the key way in which I can do that because of a combination of my experiences and my education is I can help them make the right decision when the time comes for them to put a salesperson on because that salesperson should enable them to grow beyond where they're capable of going now. So, you know, the blueprint for me is, is really all about helping small business owners absolutely, you know, make the next step in realising their goals and their dreams and their ambitions. Mm. So don't forget, listeners, to reach out to James and uh, send him that email with the study in the headliner. We'll drop the uh, address in the show notes for you. So, James, many of our listeners are small business owners and it's possible that they've been you know, grinding away from startup for, for many, many years. What are your top three tips for them to level up? I think first and foremost, it's about having a very, very deep understanding of who you're trying to sell to. There was a book written many years ago by a guy called Michael Gerber in the 1980s. It's called The E-Myth, you know, and, and the E in that particular book standing for the entrepreneur myth. Lots of us as small business owners like to label ourselves as entrepreneurs. The truth of the matter is a lot of us are not. We're technicians. We're in love with our mousetrap. We think our mousetrap is the best mousetrap known to mankind. And why people aren't buying our particular mousetrap just boggles us, Right. And it's largely because what we're doing is we're focusing too much on the mousetrap and we're not really focusing on the client and, and getting a deep and abiding understanding of who they are, how, how, how they live their life, what their dreams are, what their concerns are and, and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's about very, very much understanding, you know, who is the ideal client and, you know, the term these days is avatar. Who is that ideal avatar and how well do you really know them or is it just superficial? And then, you know, to what degree are you shaping all of your communications around that understanding of that person? So that's probably number one. Number two, and, and this made a fundamental difference for this particular business, Justify Talent. When we first kicked off, our tagline was, you know, we help small to medium-sized business owners recruit professional and managerial staff. <sighs> You know, really? How compelling is that? Well, not, not at all. Not in the slightest. It didn't make us stand out at all from the crowd. You know, what it, do, what it did was it pushed us into the sea of the ordinary, right? Um, to quote Billy Connolly, and I'll, I'll delete the swear word that he would put in here, but I'm surrounded by a sea of bloody beige, right? However, as a result of receiving some counsel around that, you know, I reshaped our focus and so long-winded response here, but ultimately the next tip is niche. Don't be afraid to niche. On the contrary, niching is your friend. So today the tagline is justified talent helps more business owners to recruit their very first sales professional. Now, what did that do? That cut out a whole raft of opportunity 
allegedly, and that's when the business took off. As soon as we got really super clear and super refined and super tight on who we served and how we served them, rather than trying to be many things to many people because, you know, I don't want to say no to an opportunity, that's when it made all the difference in the world, right? So it's around super, super, super niching, the degree you can have that courage. And, and, and to quantify that in some way, if we only win 1% of the available market in Australia, that makes us a $5.6 million a year turnover business, 1%. So we can lose 99% of just that market and we're making 5.6 million of revenue, right? Number three is you know, pretty much the no-brainer and it's about getting good people around you. And that does take a leap. You get into that kind of frying pan fire thing. You know, do I commit to having a person on or not? And what happens if it doesn't work out? Blah, 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 blah. And so we talk ourselves into delaying it and delaying it and delaying it and then wonder why we're working 18-hour days and, you know, six days a week or seven and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's about getting good people around you. Absolutely brilliant tips because, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with buying yourself a job if that's what you want to do, but you don't necessarily have that entrepreneurial way of thinking or doing things and, you know, absolutely have to separate yourself from the pack. And, you know, what you've just said there is just brilliant. Just niching down really works. And I hear it time and time again where people say, you know, I I don't want to miss out, but that 1% is a big, big market for most small businesses, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, if you're really clever with it and if you think about it, you know, deeply enough and, and you engage other people to help you with that thinking if that's not your strength, you end up really differentiating yourself. Like people say to me, who's your competition? I actually don't have any competition because there aren't any recruiters out there who've really got the courage to focus on helping small business owners, you know, a notoriously risky sector, recruit a salesperson. So it's you know, so as a consequence, we really stand out from the crowd. Absolutely. So in the world of money and finance, we often talk about equity and how does getting the right talent in your business really hit that bottom line for you? So, yeah, again, I mean, you come at that from a number of different angles, right? Ultimately, you know, I think the no-brainer piece of it is that when you've got somebody who not only will do but also can do their job to a level of excellence, ultimately you're going to deliver an outcome that becomes a talking point. We've all kind of engaged in varying degrees of marketing and and marketing ultimately is about the promise that we make to our marketplace about, you know, what, what they'll get from us by way of either, you know, a specific outcome or their experience as they go with us. Well, that lives and breathes through our people. Right. And so by engaging the best possible talent that you can, you know, a a bunch of people who can and will do what's required of them to a level of excellence, then clearly the outcome that you deliver to your market is going to be superior as well. That becomes talked about, that becomes referable, right? Now you're not needing to spend as much money on marketing because you're just being referred, you know, left, right and center. And so getting good quality people piece. I know it scares a lot of people because it is a commitment. Often it's not, you know, there's a salary involved in that. On the one hand, so there's the financial commitment, but there's also the emotional commitment. You know, the, you bring this person on and and there's the, the human dynamic thing that you have to work through. And then, and especially right now, you know, lots of organizations have had to stand lots of people down and, you know, and I know a good number of business owners who've been very emotional about that. They feel as though they've let their people down. 
you know, the, the guilt, the weight of that can be hard. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I've stayed on question there or not. But Interesting anyway. But as you were saying that, we talked about, you know, people working in their businesses 18 hours a day or whatever it is. The harsh reality is, and I know this myself from personal, you know, firsthand experience, that if you're doing that level, you're suffering and your health might decline. And secondly, that you're not meeting that standard of excellence. I mean, to some extent, I think, you know, excellence is sort of overrated because it's just so um, difficult to achieve on a, a you know a regular ongoing basis but you know if you're striving for excellence but you start letting things slip then that's that's going to hit your bottom line too because people aren't going to refer you and I know firsthand you know businesses are built on referral particularly service types of businesses we tend to want to ask our friends and family who they've used and what, you know, what worked for them. And so, you know, I think that you're letting yourself down if you aren't making those decisions to recruit at the right time. And I'm kind of in that spot in my own business. So it's really, you know, front of mind for me right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there comes a time where relying on what we describe as the three Fs for, you know, your your ongoing revenue generation, there's a problem. The three Fs being um, friends, family and fools. Right. Once you've run out of friends, family, and fools, you're in a world where you have to stand out in some way and attract clients to you. Yep. So what are three most common mistakes or questions that you're hearing right now or seeing right now? Look, if I come at, come at it from a hiring perspective, right, because obviously that's, that's my strength. The one big mistake I'm finding is that too many small business owners find themselves in a state of panic when it comes to needing to bring a salesperson on. Right. And in fact, I've got a, a little document that I make available, which is called the seven biggest mistakes that small business owners make when they're recruiting a salesperson. And mistake number one is hiring one when you need one. Too late. Right. That's too late. You, you're going to find yourself in a state of panic because, and, and even now with the current economic environment where a lot of business owners will think there's going to be a lot of talent available out there, guess what? That's just added to the problem. It hasn't made it easier. Now, instead of getting 35 applications, you're going to get 350. How the hell are you going to sift through all of that? Right. So now there's, there's an even bigger mountain of work. And so the lag time that it takes to find the right person ends up putting stress on because you really need them. Right? And often it's not what you find is, you know, you find that one person. And when you're making a selection from a short list of one, damn, that one looks good. And I'd love a buck for every business owner who's asked me to find a replacement for somebody that they hired and who says to me, but she was really, really good at the interview. I don't get it. Yeah, well, guess what? She made her first sale right there and then. So the big mistake from a hiring perspective is leaving it too late, particularly when it comes to hiring salespeople. You know, small business owners should be on the lookout all the time for good quality talent, right? My focus is sales, but there'll be lots of other, what I'll describe as mission critical roles in your business quite likely. And so, you know, I would encourage you to be constantly on the lookout for those kinds of people. You know, you, you'll be having conversations with them in one way or another quite likely. And just kind of hit them up and say, hey, listen, I don't have an opportunity at your moment, but would you be open to having a coffee one day and kind of chatting about your career? And it's about the idea of having people in the wings, if you like. It's like a pipeline of talent, just like you want to have a pipeline of sales, you know, so that when that opportunity comes, you've already got two or three people who you've been having some conversation with, and you've both gone over that no like, trust, respect bridge together. I mean, the, the other side of things, 
and this is this is a big one. You know, I see so many, and I hear so many small business owners. And Janine, I think you'll resonate with this particularly. Is folks, that GST money is not yours, right? The number of businesses who are in a debt situation with the ATO, that money's not yours. Stop spending it. True, <laughs> true. <laughs> Can't tell you how many people I meet <laughs> who who are in trouble with the ATO because they, you know, haven't set aside their money in the right pots. They don't have a profit war chest and they don't have their money to pay their taxes. Absolutely. And and you're kidding yourself if you ever think there's going to be some kind of windfall where you catch up. It won't happen. Just won't happen. And and it just it blows my mind the number of businesses who too readily fall into that trap of, you know, using the GST, you know, just just for this month, which has got to, you know, keep these people at bay and all that. Don't do it. No, I absolutely agree. So something that came to mind there where you were um, talking, James, was I quite like that book, Oversubscribed. And and mm-hmm. I think that's what you're sort of reflecting there is that, you know, by the time you get to the point where you scream out going, I need a salesperson, you know, you've already built that momentum to that place and you need them right now. You can't afford to wait, you know, three months and then three months to get them, you know, up and running into, you know, your way of doing things. So you need to be on the constant lookout and that's, you know, outstanding advice. So thanks for sharing that my pleasure james i was checking out your website which is www.justifiedtalent.com and i watched a tremendous little video there in which you said that you can help people identify their hardwired strengths and that investing in themselves as an asset you know that really resonated with me tell us more about that so again it's the you know the social scientist behavioral psychology kind of background the truth of the matter is We human beings, you know, particularly by the time we kind of hit our later teens, the hardwiring in us us has started to kind of harden up, right? We are who we are by around about age 18. And the analogy that I like is that we tend to practice and become proficient at those things that we prefer, right? The three Ps. So I, I tend to practice and become proficient at that stuff that I prefer. Where does that preference come from? Well, it comes from who I am, you know, my, my, the total combination of my cognitive abilities, my hardwired behavioral attributes, and my occupational interests. So as a consequence, there are certain kinds of work that we are already predisposed to because of our nature, right? The world of finance is one that I would not go anywhere near because it just doesn't suit who I am as a human being. So what I've been doing over the last three years in particular, partly, so I I did a study in 2017 of two and a half thousand salespeople all around Australia, both in city, suburban and regional areas, using a particular psychometric assessment, which is considered to be the most predictively reliable psychometric assessment on the planet at the moment. And out of that, what very clearly emerged was a benchmark where we can see that those people who are incredibly successful in the B2B sales in solution selling, so I'm going to be very specific about that, they have a particular pattern. There's a particular way in which they are all hardwired, which is very clear and very evident. That's been reinforced by the fact that over the last two years, we've had just over 1,400 people apply for the 120 roles that you know we've been recruiting for, and we profile all of those people as well. And again, you know what it's done is, is it's added uh, depth of data, but it continues to prove this benchmark which has, has evolved and emerged. And so, you know, what we have the capacity to do now is to, excuse me, help salespeople understand 
the degree to which their hardwired nature lends itself to success in that kind of role. Now, we've got a couple of other benchmarks as well. We've got solution selling, challenger selling, relationship selling as benchmarks. So, you know, we, we have this capacity to help salespeople understand what is it in their nature and to what degree does that lend itself to them being successful, you know, in, in a sales role. We need to talk some more offline, James. That's fascinating. So tell us more about yourself growing up. What initially sparked your interest in, you know, social sciences and sales and so on? Not altogether sure what sparked the interest. So I'm a son of a wheat farmer in WA. I left high school at the age of 16, having discerned that there wasn't a damn thing they were teaching me that was of any use whatsoever in the real world, which of course, as a 16-year-old, I would know. But I did two things really, really well because of being you know, brought up on the farm. I could run for a long, 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 long time, and I could shoot with a degree of accuracy. And turns out there was an employer out there that actually valued those two particular skills, right? Army. So I went into the army at age 17. And, you know, the army is a really interesting kind of institution. You get told what to wear. You get told what time to wake up. You get told what time to go and have breakfast. You get told to go and have a smoke break. And if you don't smoke, just go through the motions. It's very, very, you know, dictatorial, you know, and, and as a consequence, they also tell you your career direction. And so when I joined up, I had gone through, like everybody does, a bunch of scholastic testing and they'd identified that I had some particular talents and all that kind of thing. And so they then told me they wanted me to go and do this particular degree. You know, and so it was a a Bachelor of Social Science where they wanted a major in psychology. I added another major because I knew I wouldn't want to be a psychologist when I left the army. But I often like to warn people that on the psych side of things, I did it for reasons of evil, not reasons of good, because the army made me do it. But anyway... What that did was that created a fascination for me around the hardwiring of people and the degree to which that either helps them be successful or sometimes limits them and gets in their way. And so, you know, just out of that and and because of the kinds of people that I got to hang out with during my military career, commandos and people like that, I got to see people demonstrating absolute peaks of performance in the most arduous of circumstances you know, and, and as I sat back and kind of thought about what was allowing them to do that, ultimately it was about who they were as a, you know, as a human being. And so that's been my fascination all the way through. And so from there, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've been in corporate roles, which have been in and around HR. Um, I've, I've owned a sales training business or co-owned a sales training business for 15 years. I owned a leadership development business for 13 years. You know, I've owned a cultural consulting business, corporate culture consulting business, uh, for about 20 years. Yeah. And so there's, there's this kind of fairly consistent theme throughout, and that is human behavior and performance, which ultimately came as a result of Army saying to me, get up at this time, go to the dentist on that day. And by the way, you're doing this degree. So that's really interesting because one of the problems I see all the time or speak to clients about all the time is potentially a lack of financial discipline. Many people I meet don't you know, know what they're spending their money on. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so those sorts of disciplines learnt very early in your life or career are very important throughout your lifetime is my observation of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if I take that on a slightly different angle as well, you and some of the other listeners may be familiar with a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Mm. And in the book, you know, Collins talks about the rise and rise and rise of some fairly well-known brand names who were, to begin with, only good businesses but then became great businesses. And that journey, that that transition from being good to great was the outcome of, as he describes it, disciplined people 
applying disciplined thought and taking disciplined action. And, you know, obviously, you know, I've had the privilege of serving in the military where discipline obviously is, you know, you eat discipline as, you know, as a bowl of cereals every morning. So that got instilled in me. But when it comes to financial disciplines, you know, where does that come from? Uh, unless you've got parents who are that way inclined, I mean, th there is nowhere where anybody really gets taught the disciplines of financial management and financial well-being and wealth building. Kind of sad. I mean, you you kind of end up there by default or you don't. Yeah. And that's right. And, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit in people sitting around the kitchen table these days having conversations about money or playing cards or playing Monopoly and or, you know, even if they're at the supermarket and, you know, tap and go is so prevalent that kids don't have money going through their hands just, mm. you know, trying to explain the value of money, you know, that apple was a dollar and that lolly was a dollar fifty, and you know, those sorts of things. There's absolute value in in doing that, and you know, even most households I speak to, one member of the household is you know looking after all the household finances and paying all the bills and doing all those things. But I call on families to sit down once a month and really give an update of, you know, you're, if you're the family CFO, give an update to the family of what's happening with your money and explain what happens with lending and paying your mortgage and all of those sorts of things. They're pretty easy conversations and they're pretty real conversations to have and, and that's where kids learn that discipline. And so if you're undisciplined, get some professional help so you can help your kids because it'll make a huge difference to their future. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Mm. You've actually just reminded me of a little story, uh, quickly deviating. I've just remembered a guy that I met a number of years ago. His name was Jock. And he was in the real estate game and had done incredibly well for himself. And originally he was from the Western suburbs in Sydney. But as I came to meet him, he was now living in Mossman. And he shared with me that his eight-year-old son had just lost a tooth and had gone to his dad and said, Dad, will the tooth fairy be coming tonight? Um, and Jock said, uh, yeah, I, I guess so, mate. Um, just, just out of interest, you know, what does a tooth fairy leave for all of your friends? To which the boy said, and we're talking Mossman and the lower North Shore of Sydney, oh, 50 bucks, Dad. <laughs> what? <laughs> to which Jock said, yeah, we don't hang out with those kind of fairies, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect response. Uh, I thought the tooth fairy was, you know, two bucks, five bucks, you know, 50 uh Gold coin donation. No, no, yellow note, apparently. <laughs> Funny. So what do you wish you had known when you were starting out in your career or life in general, James? Ooh. Actually, you know, and I'm not just saying this to Panda, to, to you or your audience, Janine, but I really wish I had learned to save money, mm. right? I reckon I'm a black belt third Dan at spending it. I'm pretty good at spending it. And these days... That's okay. But yeah, I, I really, really wish that I had been taught or knew about back then the value of putting 10% aside, 10% aside, 10% aside, you know, and, and that whole notion of compound interest and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I think it would have made it would have made a difference, no doubt about that. Oh, it would absolutely make a difference. And it does come down to that discipline again, you know, small amounts compounding over a long period of time, you know. If people want to know how to be a millionaire, just write me a little note and I'll I'll send you my advice because it's it's about 
you know, small amounts over a, over a long period of time and anyone can do it if they want to. Uh, it's just about knowing how. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. look, I'm not that interested in stereotyping people. You know, as you mentioned earlier, we've all probably heard stories about some dodgy sales assistant or whatever. Is sales learned skill and what does it take to be at the top of a sales leaderboard? Look, there are some people who will have some of the stuff naturally within them. The two key things which are probably, you know, they're good indicators of the likelihood of being successful in sales are the degree to which you are goal-driven. So in psychological terms, we refer to this as motivational intensity, right? So to what degree do you have a natural, naturally high level of motivational intensity? What sort of goals do you have and how much energy will you put into the pursuit of those goals? And as you come up against obstacles, you know, will you push through them or will you quit? If you keep quitting, you're not going to succeed in sales, right? And then the other side of things is that you've got to have a, you've got to have a reasonable degree of risk preparedness, right? Sales is one of the riskiest jobs in the world, kind of. I mean, obviously being a soldier is super risky and, you know, being a policeman is super risky and all that kind of thing. In terms of corporate roles, Sales has got a high degree of risk attached to it by virtue of the fact it's the one role where more people will say no to you on a consistent basis than yes. Right? There is no other role in any organisation where routinely people are consistently saying no, 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 and in various forms they'll say no to you, right? So if you don't have that natural risk preparedness, you're going to struggle in sales. And if you don't have that strong uh, motivational intensity, you're going to struggle. The rest of it, I'm going to suggest, Janine, is skill, mm. right? It really is skill. It's about picking up the tool bag and learning how to use the tools in the right way. And in terms of getting to the top of the leaderboard, it, what's interesting about that is that's kind of changed, right? If you'd have asked me that back in the 1980s or even the 1990s, you know, I, I'd be giving you a different answer and I won't bother with that answer because today it's different, right? Because of the fact that today... By sheer dint of the internet, buyers have the capacity to go, um, you know, and, and the, the numbers are suggesting 60% of the way down their buying decision journey before they get engaged with a salesperson, right? Yeah. If I want to go and buy a new power drill, I, I can look at every power drill that exists on earth if I want to and have an understanding and I actually have no understanding of power drills, so I'll probably talk rubbish now, but understanding of their talk and, you know, how, whatever it might be. And I can simply then walk into Barnings or wherever and go on a beeline. I don't need a salesperson to convince me of anything or educate me on anything anymore other than, excuse me, mate, where are the drills? Uh, aisle 18, son. You know, so that kind of thing. So getting to the top of the leaderboard today, we mostly deal, our clients tend to be more B2B clients. So getting to the top of the leaderboard when you're in a B2B sales role is about having positioned yourself as a subject matter expert, positioned yourself as a genuine authority in your field and having differentiated yourself from your uh, competitors by virtue of the insights that you share with your prospects. And there's a whole range of different ways in which we do that today, you know, whether that's through LinkedIn or Facebook or YouTube or whatever, whatever it may be, running webinars, you know, doing podcasts, positioning yourself as the subject matter expert and sharing insights with your 
prospects, marketplace audience, where they can access that that knowledge um, without you even knowing, that makes all the difference today, all the difference in the world. You know, it's about positioning yourself strongly so that when the people are going and doing the research, you're the one they keep finding. And every time they find you, everything you say is gold. Mm they then make the decision to come and do business with you. And that makes sense from the point of view as well, that if people, you know, looking for a financial advisor, for example, can do 50, 50 or 60% of their homework before they even pick up the telephone or send an email or do whatever it is, that, right. you know, niching down, as you mentioned earlier, makes sense because they're going to find you if that's your space and you're the expert in that thing. Yeah. Correct. It is definitely about the expertise. You know, there's this journey that people go on now where, first of all, I need to know you, then I need to like you, then I need to trust you, and then I need to respect you, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, whatever you're putting out there for people to consume, do it with the intent of building that no like, trust, respect bridge as I refer to it. So it's not just about how glitzy you are and it's not about, you know, whether you're provocational or whether you've got, you know, pretty imagery you've got to build the trust respect piece as well, Mm. right? And then you definitely become the go-to person. Absolutely. So how does being at the top of your game, you know, translate to remuneration and, you know, our sales positions typically commissions-based or has that changed as well over time? That's a really interesting one. It kind of depends what sector you're in, Mm. okay? So, for example, in the information and communication technologies, ICT, otherwise known as IT space, very few salespeople, I can't remember who the supermodel was that coined this phrase, but very few salespeople will get out of bed for anything less than a base salary of 150 grand, right? That's just a salesperson, not a sales manager or sales director, but you know, somewhere around that 120 to 150K base for a salesperson to bother getting out of bed and come and work for you. On top of that, then, in that space, there's a general expectation that they should be able to earn almost that same amount again, right? So good quality information technology salesperson, you know, probably selling complex solutions into enterprise level organizations, they would have an expectation of an on-target earning package of around 300K, right? On the one hand, go to another industry, solar sales, right? In particular, domestic solar, right? So if you're going to get solar panels, those guys and gals are on a salary generally of about 45,000, right? Now, they would hope to, through commissions, probably pull somewhere in the order of, in total, so add the base to the commissions, a total of maybe 80, 90 or 100 grand a year. But that's, you know, you see two complete polar opposites there. So a lot of that has got to do with how complex is the sale and therefore how big is the tool bag that you need to bring along, right? Doing a quote and measure at mum and dad's dining table, not quite as complex as selling a $3 million capital investment where you've got to get 15 people inside an organisation to buy into it and vote for you know your pitch and all that kind of thing. So... Yeah, it ten- tends to depend on, on how complex is the sale and to whom are you selling it. I've had a raft of business owners approach me in the last four weeks and pose the question of, you know, given the situation at the moment, can I get people on commission only? I'll share with you why I walk away from those people. I won't 
do I'm not interested in doing business with those people because what they're telling me right from the very beginning is they'd really like to do it on the cheap right and that sends alarm bells for me immediately because and I know ultimately it probably won't be on the cheap like if the person's actually generating sales worthy of the commission they'll they'll pay good money but it's about not being prepared to kind of back that and support that person on the way through. It's like, I want you to do all of the work, all of the work, all of the work, with the only guarantee being, if you're successful, you'll be successful. You know, that's not really the kind of culture that I want to place my candidates into. You know, for me, it leaves a bad taste right from the very beginning. Exceptions to that, two industries that I do find, you know, are still quite orientated towards a large chunk being commissioned is real estate and mortgage broking. You know, those two kind of related property areas, there's pretty much an expectation that a very, very low base, but with potentially huge commissions. You know, I know some real estate people who are making more than a million dollars a year. Thank you. So, sorry, this is a bit left field, but what if you are a sales professional and you found yourself in the wrong business or the wrong position? Does that fail you, you know, um, ruin your career? Is it, you know, career ending? You know, what sort of does it mean if you, for your prospects in the future and your future remuneration? Yeah, look, it's it doesn't have to be. Again, you know, as, as we go through our process with our candidates and as our clients, so we give them access to a dashboard and they get to see the candidates progressing through. Often as not, they'll see one or two candidates who've kind of just gone through what you just described and they'll say, mm, what about this one? Like he's doing a bit of job hopping here, right? My first response is generally one to caution them, and that is, we all know this. We all join great organisations and we leave, pardon my French, dickhead bosses. Done it myself many times. Hello, me too, right? Mia culpa. You know, so rather than dismissing that person off, simply off seeing that fact, that piece of data, why don't we engage them in a conversation? If everything else is stacking up and they're looking like they're okay, why don't we have that conversation? You know, let's just get that one out in the open. So to that salesperson who's going to be asked that question, you've got to learn to gift wrap that. You've got to learn to be able to explain why that just wasn't going to work for you. And I absolutely have, you know, I've got a very real situation where I am fearful of, I will share, cold calling. I hate cold calling. It sends me into a state of panic. And you would imagine that I could probably sit myself down and have a quiet chat. And, you know, how do you feel about that, James? But so, you know, I can't resolve it. So I'm, I'm fearful of cold calling. And I was in an organization a number of years ago where if you weren't cold calling or couldn't cold call, you were out. And what I did for a little while was I kind of came up with a circumnavigated way of doing it where I would actually send a lead letter out, old fashioned snail mail and pre-internet. And for some reason that gave me the confidence to ring somebody up. But the boss found out, went nuts he was the boss, I wasn't, we parted ways. Right now, as I ex have explained that, um, you know, because I have subsequently been in employed roles, you know, these days, it'll be me that fires me. But as I've, I've explained that very story, most people kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. I was only there six months, and they kind of get it. Oh, yeah, okay, fine. So it's really about making sure that you've got a well-crafted, and, and it shouldn't, and when I say the word story, I don't mean as in a lie, but tell it in a story-like fashion about what happened. And I think nine times out of 10, people will get that. Yeah, it's kind of hard. I mean, I've, I've had a candidate recently who has suffered five redundancies in a row, you know, and I can't even begin to imagine how he must feel about 
luck or otherwise in the world or in his world, but you've got to be able to learn to be able to kind of gift wrap that. Having been in the corporate world for 20 plus years myself, I've suffered three redundancies and and you can't help but take it personally, I think. So, you know, the adult in you, it has to deal with that. It can be extremely difficult. So I completely get that. James, you've added such value so far, but I know for our listeners, you've got some more great tips um, coming up. So please stick around. So what values underpin you, James, as a human? Ooh, wow. Look, I think... First and foremost, for me, it's compassion. And it's an interesting one. My kids shared with me just recently that on occasions they find me intimidating. And my son's 20, my daughter's 22. And I think they find me less intimidating today than perhaps they did some time ago. And that's probably the army version of me still lingering around. When I challenge that a little bit more, it's like, am I always intimidating? No, 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 not all the time, but there are times when you are. So that was good. And, and as they shared that with me, that kind of you know broke my heart because what I'd like to believe that I am is in fact a compassionate human being. I have a lot of care for other people and I, you know, I do give a lot of my time and I'm, I'm keen to help people get through different things, right? So I think for me, number one is, is probably going to be um, about compassion. The other one, and this is an interesting one because it kind of morphs between is this in fact a behavioral trait and or is it in fact a value? I think it's both of them. And that is take risks. Clinically, I'm two and a half times more inclined to take risks than the average person on the street. I'm very much a risk taker. I like to think that they're somewhat calculated, but I know some of them are not. Some of them are just spur of the moment. I'm just going to take this risk. Sometimes that comes out verbally, right? So I'm going to say something, which I know is risky, but often it's not when that happens. It's because probably my compassion value has been challenged. You know, I'm, I'm probably seeing somebody who is not being suitably compassionate about a particular cer- certain you know, situation or, or, or a person. And so I'll then take the risk and challenge them. And then the other one, again, if you asked either of my kids, Josh and Emma, what's the number one Michael family value? Hopefully they would still reply, Michaels don't quit. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Has there been a particular person who changed your life through, a, you know, just a simple act of kindness and, and how did you go about thanking that person and, you know, do, does giving back have to be expensive? Uh, yeah, there is a person and no, it doesn't have to be expensive. And, and in fact, I put a post up on LinkedIn about this guy about a year ago, I think, or maybe six months ago. So it's a gent by the name of Peter Beckenham. He was my boss in Lend-Lease Financial Services at the time. He had been Aside from one other boss that I'd had in the military, you know, so there's probably three people who I've reported to who I would say have been great exemplars of the kind of leader who I will willingly follow and who brought out the best in me. And Peter was definitely one of those. There was this really interesting conversation that had happened. Uh, I'd been in the role for about a year. I was based down in Nowra on the south coast of New South Wales. And he'd come and had our one-on-one meeting. He was based in Canberra. We had our one-on-one meeting and it was a performance appraisal. And, you know, I got a really, really good rating. And he shared with me that I and one other guy, a guy reported to him who was based in Canberra, were his two best managers, right? So he was the state manager. We were a manager and we had teams under, underneath the sales teams. And, and he said, you know, I've got to tell you, you and this other guy are my absolute two best managers you know i just i love what you do and how you do it and the attitude and blah 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 and that evening i met up with him to go and have dinner 
and he said to me, mate, I think it's time for you to get out of this role. What? He said, yeah. In fact, I've been having a conversation with Ross, who was his peer, but up in Sydney. And I've set up for you to go and have a conversation with Ross. There's a role going up there that I think you'd be fantastic for. And I said, hang on, I'm confused. Earlier this afternoon, you tell me that I'm one of your best managers and, and you know, you love having me on your team. Now you're telling me you want me to leave this job and go work for somebody else. He said, yeah, absolutely. He said, because here's the deal. I know what your goals are. I know what your dreams are. I know what your aspirations are. And you're not going to realize them here. You're just not. You need to be in Sydney. So I want you to go and have a chat with Ross, right? And then I, I looked at him kind of half accepting it but kind of bewildered. And he said, mate, here's the deal. A year from now when you're really kicking goals, you and I will have a drink together and you and I will both know that you and I got you there. <laughs> Probably the key takeaway about Peter and he and I have, we had a 30-year gap and we've just caught up with each other recently. Oh, how lovely. On Facebook <laughs> of all places. And Pete lives in a, in a village in Thailand now, runs a fantastic coaching business globally, but out of a village in Thailand. You know, the key thing that I've always admired about him is his selflessness. So, you know, what did I do to thank him? Well, first of all, I went on and, and you know, did as he asked and, you know, I've, I've continued to apply myself to be as successful as I possibly could and be a good human being while doing that. But more recently, what I did was I put a post up on LinkedIn after we'd reconnected and told everybody about him, um, you know, and, um, you know, I promote his coaching business. So Doing good in the world doesn't have to cost a lot. <laughs> and, no. You know, I think that when, when you were telling that story then, James, that truth would have felt a little bit like a slap in the face, but you look back and reflect on it and say, look, it's, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, took me to a new level in my career and so, you know, that worthy did. Yeah, yeah. It opened doors for me and created opportunities for me that I would not have had had I stayed in the role reporting to him. And he knew that. It was great. I think sometimes, you know, great bosses hold their people back because they don't want to lose them, but set them free. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So do you have a financial plan, James? And, you know, what have you done personally to get control of your money and at the same time support, you know, your the people you care about, your family and so on? I do. And, you know, we've got the four businesses. I'm actually just launching another one right now. And, and that's in, in response to, you know, the economic environment in which we find ourselves. And so I, I'm an avid P&L mapper. I've probably got one of the most detailed and complex P&Ls known to mankind. And that was, again, thanks to a boss that I worked for who had been a CFO before he became the managing director, you know, and so he was absolutely rigorous about making us, you know, forecast everything properly. So, yeah, you know, there's, there's very clearly defined plans in place. The business is set up in terms of shareholding and trusts and all that kind of thing, such that it's going to take care of, um, you know, my kids and my uh, now partner. Got all of that in place. Fantastic. So, you're enjoying the benefits of it because, it, you know, I, I find that people just want that peace of mind. They want to be able to relax into yep. what their, you know, goals and aspirations are. And if you've got that baseline, you know, you've got your go-to place. We've just been through the COVID pandemic and, you know, so many people who've had good advice were able to relax and say, it's okay, you know, I, I don't, you know, yes, the markets have dropped and my investments have gone down, but I don't need to worry about it. I know what to do. You know, I might have lost my income, but it's okay. I know what to do. I've got some emergency funds sitting over here. And, you know, just having those plans in place meant that they were able to 
to not panic and even business people you know the same sort of thing if they've got their plans in place it means that they don't have to you know quickly pivot and potentially make the wrong decisions you know they can take pause and make informed choices yeah absolutely right the analogy that i use often is not with these sorts of things is you know, once upon a time, you'd go to save something on your computer, you'd get a little pop-up that come up that would say, you know, hard disk is full. And I kind of liken the human brain to that. There's only so much stuff that either I can deal with and compute or even just remember. And so often it's not things like having a good financial plan. It's kind of like putting it on a USB or putting it on an external drive. It's there. I know it's safe. I just need to plug it in when I need it. But right now, I don't even need to think about it. So it's not occupying any of my, my mind. You know, my mind is freed up then to be, you know, creative or to just relax if needs be. So, yeah. I've talked a lot over the time that, you know, previous videos and so forth about putting your money on autopilot. Just let you get it on autopilot. You can get on with driving what, what you need to be driving towards. Yeah. And, you know, when you need to, you know, jump over there as you said it's on that usb you get it pull it back say well what's changed what hasn't you know tick yeah. tick 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 make new plans if you need to yeah. so what's one thing our listeners can do right now to help their businesses or themselves financially in the long run james what's your best tip best tip right now i would say and you know and I, i'm going to come back to the sales side of things because you know, that's that's my space the best thing you can do right now is spend some time getting absolute crystal clarity on who your ideal customer is, what their goals are, their dreams are, their aspirations, but also their fears, their concerns, their limitations. Know them inside out, upside down, you know, to the point of, you know, do they have a preference for Apple or for Samsung, right? Those sorts of things. Are they a Mac user or are they a Windows user? You know, and I know that sounds like it's a stupid level of detail, but when you deeply understand your ideal avatar in that way, you better serve them. Better position you are to serve them, the more likely you are to be successful. You stand out from your crowd. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So where can we find you, James? Give us your details again and that fantastic offer. Okay. So justifiedtalent.com is the website. Obviously, you can find me on LinkedIn, James Michael at Justified Talent. And then in terms of the offer, if you want to have an understanding of the archetype or the architecture of highly successful salespeople, I've got a white paper which is available for you to receive. Just email me at jamesm at justifiedtalent.com and I will send that to you uh, obviously at no charge and you're not going to go in some kind of mailing list uh, and you're not going to get you know harangued by me consequently. Thank you so much for your time today, James. That was absolutely extraordinary. So thank you for sharing your you. wealth of knowledge. I thank our listeners and if you would like to get a gift voucher from me for a free discovery session, uh, email me at admin at finesseadvisors.com and we'll shoot that through to you. Thank you again, James. We'll sign off. My pleasure. Thank you, Janine. Hope you enjoyed the show today and have some action steps you can take right now to get control of your money. Join me, Janine Wilson, next time for Finesse Your Money. Meantime, head to my website, www.finesseadvisors.com or email me at admin at finesseadvisors.com to claim a gift voucher for a discovery session with me valued at $150 make sure you put gift voucher in the headline.